0: Okay, well, let's start reading Daniel chapter 6, maybe one of the most uh, famous uh, passages in all of Scripture. In fact, if we did the word association game and I said Daniel, most of you would say something like lion's den, right? And so that's where we are in Daniel 6. So let's start reading in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We'll, we'll bounce around a little bit. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was found in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint, but Uh, or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, O king establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God, before his God, as he had done previously. Now, skip down to verse 16. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions and the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king rose, arose and went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions?' Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouth of lions and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted God. In uh, May of 2000, um, a group of about 40,000 college students gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, for what's called a passion conference. It's a Christian conference that's meant to challenge uh, younger believers, college students in their face. And uh, that morning, um, dew's still on the ground. The tent city that was set up there was kind of coming to life. And John Piper, many of you know that name, but he wasn't as well-known back then. John Piper was scheduled to speak. This was the largest crowd that John Piper had ever spoken in front of up to that point. And he was understandably nervous, It was like, you know, Lord, and he he began to plead with God, please, God, give me a word for these college students. Help me, Lord. I want to speak prophetically into their lives. And many of the students that were there looking back now 17 years ago comment about how that was a sermon that absolutely changed their lives. It's become a very famous sermon. It's become actually a book and Bible study and all this that arose out of this one prayer of him going before God, and please help me and give me the words that I need to say. In fact, I want to read to you an extended part of this sermon. John Piper got up to the podium and he said this, you don't have to know a lot of things in your life to make a lasting difference in this world. You don't have to be smart or good-looking, or from a good family. You just have to know a few basic, glorious things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. And then he laid out a comparison that nobody there ever forgot and actually still sort of ripples through today. He said, three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliasson, over 80 years old, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards A medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnering up with Ruby for ministry. She was also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. The brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. Then he said this, and I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women, he goes on, in their 80s almost, a whole life devoted to one idea Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places, and 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, and these two women fly into eternity in a moment. Is this a tragedy? And 40,000 students knew the answer. No. And then he dropped the bomb that still echoes. He said, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. And he said, I want to read to you what a tragedy is. And at this point he pulled out a page from a Reader's Digest, and somebody interviewed him later on. He said, I don't even know why I had it. I don't subscribe to Reader's Digest. (laughs) And he read this. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gordo, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. That is a tragedy. He goes on, and there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And with all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. You don't want to stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did and say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection, and I've got a good swing, and look at my boat. And then he said, don't waste your Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Daniel didn't waste his life. Most scholars believe that by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, we are listening and looking at a man who is either in his 80s or 90s and he wasn't collecting seashells. And he wasn't a minister or a pastor. And he is working until his last breath for the sake of God and his glory. So I want to look at this passage. Because here's here's what strikes me about Daniel the more I read this. Daniel is a man who obviously knew scripture, but didn't just know it, didn't just read it, didn't get up in the morning and have his cup of coffee and have a devotional. He read it, and he really, really believed what it said. So maybe he ran into something like, like Psalm 46, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, my world is turned upside down. I will be able to say, Selah. You could say with the psalmist in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. See, I've read that dozens of times. Daniel believed it. This was like life and death for him. See, how do you get there? How do you get, how do we get to a place where after 80 years, 90 years, our lives are still being poured out for the right things, and we're not collecting seashells, and our lives are making a difference for God. I want to show you some things from Daniel's life that I think will help us. And let me just say it out loud. Daniel, Daniel's super saint, isn't he? And I'm not. But there's a reason this is in Scripture. And we don't read our Old Testament without our New Testament. We understand that what Daniel does is all that Daniel does is he is a, he is a, a precursor. He's a shadow of a reality that we find in the New Testament. And that reality has a name, and his name is Jesus, I don't look to Daniel and go, Daniel, I worship you. I worship Jesus. Daniel is simply this, 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 this copy of some kind, this, something that this tells me some things about Jesus and what, the way he lived and what was true for him. And so learning to live as an exile is ultimately learning to follow Jesus. Before the Old Testament saints knew who Jesus was, they get stories about a guy like Daniel. And so let me show you some things from his life that I think let him get to a place where he says, I wasn't collecting seashells and I wasn't cruising my trawler or trying to work on my softball swing. I was making a difference till the very end. So let's go. The first thing I want you to see is that Daniel was a pilgrim. He's a pilgrim, right? So, so we talked about this before, and that is that is what happened is Daniel didn't he 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 understood from Jeremiah 29 that, that the calling of God's people who have been pulled out of the center of power, where everything's not going their way, where they no longer have the influence they used to have, they're no longer at the center of the culture, is not to isolate ourselves into little Christian ghettos or assimilate ourselves into the broader culture and just let everything go. It's it's somehow to remain distinct in the midst of of that and this is Daniel and Daniel does that because he understands right I'm I'm serving my entire life in exile see he understands the world is not my home like this ain't it I don't care how good it gets or how bad it gets this is not it I'm going to be in the culture I'm not going to be of the culture I'm going to do what Jeremiah tells me to do, and that is, I'm going to pray for the city, and I'm going to move into the city, and I'm going to be part of this culture in the sense that I'm going to live my life out. I'm going to contribute to human flourishing. Remember, this is not a pastor you're reading about. This is a guy who goes to work every Monday morning and puts in his hours and puts in his 40, 50, 60, 70 hour week serving God faithfully, being a Christian. So, man, let's not set up somehow that the ultimate be-all, end-all of Christian existence is when someday you can go into ministry. You're in ministry. Daniel's there right now, and he shames even us pastors in the way that he lives. See, and and here's the crazy thing. If you remember in chapter 2... Daniel, like Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that Daniel interprets, so Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you're the you're the golden head and then below you is silver and bronze all the way down. So there's gonna be these kingdoms that rise and fall. And here's Daniel. Daniel's had Nebuchadnezzar as a king, Daniel's had Belshazzar as a king, now Daniel has a new king, Darius, and he's still standing. He's still standing, faithfully serving in the midst of all this. And when you get to verses 1 through 5, what do you find? Here he is, he's been elevated, like he's one of the top four guys in the nation, and King Darius is so impressed by him at 80 years old that he says, I want to make him the number, like prime minister. I'm going to put him in the highest position of power. And of course, that's going to create jealousy, right? Right? Not everybody's like, oh, yay, that's awesome. Yeah, we think he should be over us, right? No, there's going to be hostility because of that. People aren't going to like you because of it. And Daniel gets elevated to this place, and and, and what happens? We find out that he he lives a lifestyle that nobody can find fault with. A few weeks ago, we talked about elders, and we said elders. So the first requirement of an elder, you look in First Timothy 3, is there to be above reproach, which means literally there's nothing in that person's life to grab hold of. Like, I, 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 I try, I'm trying to pull you down, but I can't, I can't get anything. I, I, I got no jersey to grab hold of. I can't pull you to the ground. This is Daniel. He is above reproach. There is nothing for them to grab. He's so faithful to his God. He's so faithful in in his worship and the way he works and his integrity and all these things. Think about this. They can't find anything about him to accuse him and somehow take him down. So you know what they have to do? They actually have to make something up. They have to create something that becomes illegal so that they can trap Daniel. Would to God, Christian, this could be said of every person that goes in the workplace tomorrow. But they just can't, they got nothing on you. There's no underhanded deals. There's no, there's no fudging on expense reports. There's nothing this wiggling around. They, they could, fine, open my life up like a book. You search everything about me, you'll have nothing to grab hold of. And this is Daniel. He says, now why? Why is he so outstanding? Look at verse 3. It says he had an excellent spirit. This is like an Old Testament way of saying he's walking by the Spirit. This is this is their way of saying that, 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 that the Spirit of God was with him, that, that God was working in Daniel. See, and listen, when God works in you, when you don't have anything to grab hold of in people's other people's lives, they can't they can't pull you down. The spirit of God is working in you. You're gonna be a blessing. I'll tell you this to a whole lot of people, but there's gonna be some people gunning for you. you Not everybody's going to like you. I know know we'd like that. That that would be really awesome if everybody, but, but the Bible tells us that the expectation of every Christian should be what? Comfort and convenience? Suffering. Paul's going to say to Timothy, his young protege, hey, Timothy, just so you're aware, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not you might be. What's going to happen? Trials are going to come your way. Hardships, people, and persecutions are that external. I'm going to come against you because you're so godly. I don't like the fact that you don't blend in with all of us. I don't like the fact that you're different, and I'm gunning for you. But this is the expectation for everybody who is a Christian. But I thought it was God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And I've always interpreted that as that somehow God's going to give me comfort and there will be no unpleasantness. You didn't get that from Scripture. You got that from some bizarre Christian subculture narrative that we've somehow propagated. Because that ain't right, right? Scripture's not going to teach you that. Suffering and persecution are part of the Christian life. It was part of Jesus' life, part of every apostle's life. And that's what's going to happen. See, but Daniel's a pilgrim. And you know what a pilgrim understands? They understand this is not my home. No matter how good or how bad it is, this is not my home. I'm passing through this place. And so here's Daniel, 80 years, and he's still being treated like an exile. He's been faithfully serving God all these years, and he's still on the outside looking at Babylon the land now of the Medes and Persians. He's saying, this is not my home. Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, not a king, not a governor, not somebody in this this life that rules, a, a savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to resurrect us from the dead. That's what we're waiting for. If you want to make a great difference for God in this world, then you realize first and foremost, this world isn't your home. You're a pilgrim. But second of all, notice this, Daniel was a prayer. That's not a typo, right? He, he prayed. Right? So, so now you get verses 6 through 10. What happens? These guys come and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We can't trap Daniel any other way, so we're going to trap him in his consistent spiritual life. Amazing. And we're going to make this illegal for you to pray to anybody but the king or go to him to plead with the gods. And so he gets to be this intercessor. He gets to be this sort of media, uh, mediator between you and the gods. And what a heady position for a king to be. And the king's like, Well, yeah, I'll do that. Okay. For 30 days, you got it. I'll sign the ordinance. He does it. And then did you catch it? Look at verse 10 again. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, let's kind of just unpack that. I want you to see a few things. First of all, it says that Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem. He opened the windows toward Jerusalem, he prays. It's kind of a Muslim thing. You know, Muslims, they have to bow down toward Mecca five times daily and, and do their prayers, no, it's not some ritual, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing that Daniel is gaining, God isn't being more gracious to him. What he's doing is, again, I told you, he reads scripture and he really believes it. And so he goes, he goes to 1 Kings chapter 8, you can read about it, 46 to 51, we won't read it right now, but if you want to mark that in your Bible, and what does he read? He reads about Solomon dedicating the temple... And Solomon standing up, making these sacrifices, and then Solomon prays this glorious prayer. And at the end of this prayer, of the prayer, he says something to the effect of, and Lord, if your people because of their sin are ever dragged away into exile, and they turn and pray towards this place, seeking your forgiveness, oh God, will you forgive them? And will you be gracious? And will you bless them in that land? This is what Daniel's doing. Father, forgive me. You're going to read one of Daniel's prayers in chapter 9 that kind of, I think, shows this. Forgive us. We've sinned against you. Help us. Bless us, God. That's why he prays toward Jerusalem. But second of all, he prays defiantly. This is, this is really the hinge point. Remember, remember when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before King Nebuchadnezzar and said, look, king, it really doesn't matter. Throw us in or keep us out. We're not bowing down to your idol. Like, like That was the turning point. It wasn't that God rescued them from the flames. The, 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 the real major part of that narrative is they, they just said, we're not going to do it. Here it is right here. Daniel's saying, I don't care what the, what the statute says. I don't care that it's now illegal. I'm going to pray. I'm going to defy it. Now, Christian, there's a lesson in here for us. Like there will be times when what we believe, maybe, maybe sometime in our lives where something's going to become illegal that flies in the face of what we believe in Scripture and we're saying we, we know it, we're just not going to bow down to it. And here's Daniel, and let me submit to you something. Prayer is always defiance. Like prayer is defying the God of this world. I will not submit to you. I will not do what you want me to do. I have a God who's greater than you. And I'm going to call upon his name. And it doesn't matter what you throw at me. It doesn't matter how difficult you make it. I mean, think about this. It's a 30-day law. I mean, how many of us would just go, you know what? Hey, lion's den, not pray. I think I just won't pray for 30 days. I think I'll just kind of, you know, what I'll, I'll pray on the inside. Just kind of walk around, Lord Jesus, help me. You know, right, right on. We're good, they don't know I'm praying, nobody's watching. You know, I mean, seriously, we, right? He has every excuse in the world not to pray, and he prays. We have no excuse, and we still don't pray. Like I said, there's a prayer meeting this Wednesday most of you will not be here. Now, okay, just, I get it. Some of you have got jobs that are three hours away and you can't make it back. I understand that. Some of you have got you, got, you know, uh, you're in traffic. Some of you have got prior commitments that you must attend to, right? And all of those people fit in a phone booth. The rest of you <laughs> will say, I'm just not going. Now, let me tell you why you won't go. I mean, it says that Daniel, hey, I mean, not praying for thirty days. Like most of us, are like, dude, I haven't prayed for six months. So, like, wow, that's that—that's a piece of cake. You, you know why we think that way? Because because really, prayer prayer for us is kind of like leather seats in a car. You don't need them. I mean, it's a really nice addition when you got those leather air conditioned seats and all that. Um, but but it's not really necessary. No. No, it's because we don't understand that, that prayer isn't an add-on. It's not an upgrade. It's, it's the engine. Right? Going nowhere. That we have not because we ask not. That, that the prayer is an indispensable part. Daniel gets this. And, he's, and, he's, and, he, and, he, and so he prays, and he says, you know, I, you're not going to stop me. I'm going to go, which leads to the next thing. His prayer, is not, his prayer isn't just defiant. His prayer is consistent. He prays consistently. It says he goes three times a day, and then it adds, like he always did, basically. I mean, he's, just, he's just like, this is his spiritual habit. In fact, this is crazy. It is such a habit that his enemies know that if they make a law against it, they'll catch him. would that somebody could say that about me. I just know like, like that, that, that I, he's not going to deviate. This is such a habit. This is such a spiritual discipline. This is such a part of his life. There's no way. It's like eating. It's like breathing. He's not going to hold his breath for 30 days. He has to have this. See, now think about this. God could have I can think of other awesome things God could have done in this moment. Like, so Daniel goes, he kneels down, he opens up the windows, and then I'd love to read that God, you know, his enemies were spying on him. They looked over, and God blinded their eyes, and they couldn't see that Daniel was praying. I'd still be like, awesome, God, that's fantastic. But that's not what happens, is it? Because God isn't, isn't wanting to preserve Daniel from trials. He wanted to preserve them through the trials. See, are are you. Does your theology understand that God is not committed to your comfort? God is not committed to a life of smoothness and easiness for you. You know what he is radically committed to? making you more like Jesus. And do you know how he will do that most often? Through suffering, through pressure, right? No, I haven't heard people, like, man, my spiritual life just skyrocketed when I spent a week in the Alps yodeling and, and skiing and looking. I'm like, okay, great, I'm, I'm sure you felt nearer to God. But I'll tell you the people who go, you know where I felt... God, like C.S. Lewis says, his megaphone was in my suffering. And people will say, I'll never take that back. I've never felt closer to God. See, see we have this uh, this Christian urban myth that says God will never give you more than you can can handle. Okay, I defy you, find that in Scripture. Because it's not there. God always gives you more than you can handle. Every parent knows this, by the way. Right, and if you don't know it yet, give it a few years. Teenagers are coming, right? I mean, you get to a place like I don't, whatever. But this happens in all of life. You look, I, I, God, you're asking me to do things with resources that I don't have. Exactly, Chris. So that you will fall to your knees and you will cry out to me and say, God, I can't do this. Will you please be gracious so that God will speak back to you and say, Chris, no, I'm not going to deliver you from that. I want you to hear what Paul said. My grace is sufficient for you. And you're going to find me in the midst of this. And you're going to hear me in the storm. And you're going to draw close to me in this. This is where my megaphone is the loudest when you are at a place where you're at your wit's end and I don't know the way through and I don't know what to do so that when God answers, who gets the glory? It's not going to be you. It's not because you're like, dude, I'm just awesome. I figured out a way through. It's because God's awesome and he helped you. Daniel, Daniel prays consistently. But then look at Daniel prays submissively. Notice it says he makes a point of saying he prayed on his knees. He prayed on his knees. See, this is the outward posture of an inward attitude of the heart. Daniel is just doing what Paul said the entire cosmos is going to do in Philippians when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's just gonna happen. And sometimes I think we don't kneel enough. Now look it. I don't want to make too much of this, but I don't want to make too little of it. I mean, isn't it all about the heart? Chris, really isn't the posture of the heart that matters? Absolutely. If you are kneeling on the outside and standing on the inside, forget it. God wants those things linked up. But listen, we can't say, well, because I'm kneeling on the inside, because my posture on the inside is in submission to God, I don't need to kneel on the outside. I think that's wrong. Listen, apply that to marriage. Try that, husbands. Look, what matters, baby, is I love you on the inside. The external manifestation of that, you don't care about that stuff. Right? No, I care right? I mean, that's a woman's going to like, uh, no, buddy, I want to see it. And in fact, it's not just for her, it's for you. There's something about going through that physical posture. There's something about that physical love. There's something about that part of it that actually sort of brings out the submissive, that brings out the, the, the posture of the heart. And here's Daniel, and he kneels before God. Why? Because listen, Christian, kneeling is the true posture of any Christian like like, like, he's a master you are an empty handed servant he is not an elected official he's not your errand boy He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He sits enthroned above the heavens. He is the Lord of the universe. There's nobody like him, and he is deigning to allow you into his presence, and I promise you, you would fall prostrate before him. Daniel kneels. Sometimes I don't think we kneel enough. See, maybe we would remember more prominently who we are in relation to God if our physical posture would reflect that. I'm just bowing before you. Like you are my God. You are my king. You owe me nothing. Nothing in my hands. In, in my hands I bring simply to the cross of Christ I cling. I'm naked. I'm poor. I got nothing to bring to you, God i give it to you daniel prays submissively okay but let's keep going because now once you to see daniel is at peace now this is what strikes me if you look at verse 11 through 24 really the entirety of of, of, of chapter 6 in some ways daniel's kind of a side character i mean you notice this he only speaks one time he's referenced a few times but the guy that you follow around most in, the, in, in chapter six is, is King Darius. In fact, especially when you get to the place where King Darius decides, okay, I've got to throw him into the lion's den. And he throws it, I, play, I pray your God will deliver you. He throws him into the lion's den. They shut it, the, 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 they put the stone over the mouth, they seal it with the signet ring, the, the signature rings of his lords. They walk away. Now, you would think he's in a lion's den. What's going on in there? But the narrator would sort of take you down inside of there and go, let me me tell you what it was like to spend the night with the lions. He doesn't go there. Isn't that weird? He goes, let's leave Daniel there. He's all right. Let's go watch King Darius. And what do you read about King Darius? He can't sleep. He's filled with anxiety. Isn't that strange? Darius has everything the world has to offer And he tosses and turns sleepless. Daniel has had everything taken away from him. And apparently sleeps so peacefully, there's nothing to report. The lion's den's kind of boring that night. (laughs) Wild? Darius should be at peace and he's terrified. Daniel should be terrified and he's at peace why? Because God sent his angel. Because God said that he'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind stayed on me. Because because Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, remember remember when Paul gets to to Philippians 3 and he says, man, I I rejoice in the Lord always. Say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonables be known to everyone. Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now tell me, being in a lion's den and being at peace surpasses all understanding and this is Daniel This is Daniel saying, in the, in the middle of this, I, I can sleep. There's really nothing that we can talk. What's, what's happening? Daniel's simply living. He's living up to his name. We told you back in chapter 1, Daniel's name means literally, it, it, it could be translated, God is my judge. And he looks and says, look, God is judging me. And God, I don't mean judging as in he's condemning me. God has judged me. And what's he determined? I'm righteous. I've, I, I, I've, I've, I've met the bar. God says, you're Okay. And so I'm going to deliver you out of the mouth of the lions. But to his accusers, he says, you thought you were innocent. I will judge you. You will go, into the, you'll go back into the, the lion's den and you'll be ripped apart, right? I mean, this is, this is what happens. So, so in the end, the only judgment that matters is God's. I mean, in the end, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? So this is what Daniel is showing us. He's at peace in the midst of all this. But then look at the last thing. Daniel prospers. So the last part of this story, what do you hear? The king Darius, king, he's rescued. He can't believe it. He's so overjoyed. He throws the other ones into the, into the lions then. So obviously these are not tame lions, and that's how Daniel got out. No, it's a miracle. God shut their mouths. The, the, the son of God, just like he went through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fire is there with these lions overseeing them. So, nope, you're not going to touch my servant. It's going to be at peace here tonight. And when King Darius comes, he hears about it. He's like, I can't believe what's happened. Your God, Daniel, is the living God. See, this is is what happens when we are faithful till the end. When people look, this is why God means to put us Christians so often through suffering is so that those who are watching will look in and say, your God's the real God. Your God's the living God. Yours is the one who helps you. And it says, I mean, lest you skip over it too quickly, So this Daniel prospered, verse 28, during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus is the guy that's going to sign the letter that sends all sends a, a whole group of people under Ezra and Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. There it is again. Daniel, through king and kingdom, after king and kingdom, Daniel serving. And he lives his entire life as an exile he's as far as we know he never went back to Jerusalem he never made it he had to wait for his reward in another life and this is us Christian and Daniel prospers it says right and yet, what did God do? God showed, God, God shows again and again that I can keep my people. If you're in exile, I will keep you, I will keep you safe in the midst of all your trials. I will be with you, right? Exiling, being in exile is not going to be easy. There's going to be constant trouble. Daniel has faced trouble after trouble, suffering after suffering. And I have been with him through each one. But this world is not your home. You're a pilgrim. You are stopped off here on your way to somewhere else. So God delivers Daniel. He rests him out. And he, you go back to chapter 3. He delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So do we then conclude from that that God will always deliver his people out of this kind of physical harm? No. No, I mean, we know from church history. We, we know of, of hundreds of Christians being thrown into a coliseum and com- being, being ravaged by lions. I mean, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs is filled with with stories of Christians that were not rescued out of it. So what do we make of this? Remember, the Old Testament, remember this, it is a shadow of a reality to come. I'm not saying it's not true, it's true. But you don't read it on its own terms. You take it all the way and say, okay, so what do we, what is the New Testament? How does the New Testament inform this? You know what the New Testament tells us? There's coming a day when God is going to pronounce a verdict over everyone who believes and the instruments of God's judgment will never touch you. You will be declared through faith in Jesus Christ innocent, righteous, without guilt, or you will be outside of Christ, and you'll be subject to horrific, horrific things. See, 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 that's the message. We're supposed to look at Daniel, and we're supposed to see what Jesus did. We're supposed to look at Daniel and go, look at, look at like Daniel, Jesus was innocent, Like Daniel, Jesus was was accused on trumped-up charges. Like Daniel, Jesus was thrown into a tomb. Unlike Daniel, Jesus went all the way to death. This is why he is the true and better Daniel. This is why I don't worship Daniel, I worship Jesus. This is why Daniel can't take my sins but Jesus can, and so the Bible is going to say that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, and we were raised to walk in newness of life. So now because I have put my faith in Jesus, I'm united to him. And so the God of the universe looks down and says, I'm for you, I'm not against you. And there is therefore now no condemnation. So on that great day when God pronounces the final verdict to everyone who is in Christ, everyone who by faith in Jesus Christ has said, I believe and I trust that only Jesus can save me. God says, my verdict for you is not guilty, innocent. Enter, get out of that tomb, come and enter into the joy of your master. But if not, then you're subject to all the torments, all the ravaging that sin will bring your way. Where are you? Are you in Christ or outside? This is the ultimate question of life. And so, Christian, it doesn't matter. If I'm in Christ, the world can do what it wants to me. Throw me in a lion's den, put me in a burning forest, and it might even succeed. But at the end, the suffering of this present world is not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to the sons of God. That's the promise for us, Christian. I want you to do this with me. If you are physically able, I want you to kneel with me right now. Father, um, we posture ourselves this way physically because we know this is our real posture. That we are beggars, we are servants, and we come before a good and gracious king. In fact, you've told us in Hebrews chapter 4 that because of the blood of Christ, we can now come boldly before your throne of grace. But God, boldly doesn't mean arrogantly and boldly doesn't mean demandingly. We humble ourselves before you that you are the great God and King. You are the ruler of all things. In your hand are power and might. In your hand are life and death. And we come and we submit to you, God. And we thank you, God, that we're not coming before an angry king. We're coming before the one who, with your son Jesus, will graciously give us all things. And so I pray, oh God, right now, I pray that you'd give us the strength to endure. God, there are people in this room and at baseline who are suffering right now. They're suffering the pains of persecution. They are suffering the pains of illness. They're suffering the fiery darts of the enemy. And so God, we come before you right now and we just plead and ask you to sustain us. We posture our hearts before you and pray that we'd see you be gracious to us. And at the same time, we thank you, God, that when this world is is gone, when you wrap up human history, we thank you, God, that those of us who are in Christ, the verdict will come and we're going to hear not guilty. and that we will be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes through law-keeping and obedience and all the good things we do, but the righteousness from God through Jesus Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. Thank you, God. Thank you that you love beggars. Thank you that you love servants. Thank you that you love people who don't have their acts together. Thank you, God, that you even love rebels like us and that we're willing to To bow our lives before you, God, you're willing to rescue us. Do that today. I pray for my friends in this room and at Baseline. I pray, God, if there's anybody here today, I know there are, Lord, I'm sure there are, that have been relying on their own good works, have been relying on their own ability to save themselves. God, this posture of their heart before you would, would cause them to throw their hands up and cry, mercy. they would they would receive mercy God they would come to you and seek forgiveness and they'd find forgiveness they'd find life everlasting and so God do what only you can do in this room do what only you can do in our lives I pray we love you we praise you and we ask this in Jesus name amen